Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Revelation. For some time, I've been thinking about what we would do in our next Sunday night study, and I've had a really kind of a hard time deciding what we would do. I originally thought that we would probably start in the book of Genesis, and of course, uh, that's a good place for us to start. Genesis means origins, means beginnings, and... um, Much of the foundational information that we have for all of the rest of the Bible is found right there in the book of Genesis. That's a great place for us to start. But I I wasn't really settled on that because I didn't think the Lord was really leading in that direction. I, I kept getting questions from the book of Revelation. And people were asking me all the time, when are we going to do a study of the book of Revelation? If you come from my background you would understand why I might hesitate to do that because one of the things that we did just every few years, we went completely through the book of Revelation. So whenever the preacher got up to announce, well, tonight we're going to start a study of Revelation, all the congregation lets out a collective sigh because they've heard it so many times they don't want to hear it again. I'll tell you this, though. If you ever become bored with any part of the Word of God, you need to change your attitude. Uh, we, We ought to be interested in all of God's Word And uh, at the same time, though, we ought not to have such a curiosity about the book of Revelation that that we simply go there because we think it's a book to find out about future events. I believe in the futuristic view of the book of Revelation, and I'll explain uh, probably in the next lesson what that means, but learning about the future is really not what Revelation is all about. You have people like Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses and some others that really like to use the the book of Revelation because they're into all the prophecy thing. And what they really think will hook people and draw them in is if they talk about prophecies, about things that are going to happen in the end of the world. So naturally, they go to the book of Revelation, and that becomes the guidebook for future events. But that's not the purpose of Revelation. never was intended for that purpose. The name of the book of Revelation... Is, told, is, the, is in the very first verse of, of, the, of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse number 1, and that verse tells us what the book of Revelation is all about. Now, in your King James Bible, you'll notice probably at the, at the top of the page where Revelation begins that it says, the revelation of St. John the Divine. The books of the Bible, at least the names of the books of the Bible, are not inspired. And here is a book that has the wrong name. Because the name of the book is found in the first verse of the first chapter where it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Now, I have a little pet peeve about this as well. Sometimes people say revelations. It's not revelations. It's revelation, singular. This is the entire scope of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation comes from the same word that we get apocalypse. And what it means is, is the unveiling. It means to take the lid off. So many people think, well, Revelation is such a secretive book. There are mysteries here that you've got to find out. Well, it was never intended to hide anything from us. We're to study this book, and I promise you that as we, as we study it, we're going to find out about the revelation of Jesus Christ. You'll learn more about him, and along the way, you'll learn about some things that are going to happen in the future. So I decided, with God's help, that we would go through Revelation. And this is going to be a long study, uh, because my intention is the exposition of the book. So we're going to take it chapter, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're going to try to understand what this book means. Now tonight, 
And the message I want to preach to you tonight, I'm calling this the preview of the preview of Revelation. This is the preliminary message for the preliminary message. Uh, we're going to deal with uh, the first three verses that we're going to read right now a little bit later. It's not actually the text that I'm going to use tonight. Now, that's an unusual thing. Mark that down, that I'm going to read a text. I'm not going to preach from it. But uh, we're going to read Revelation 1 through 3 to get it started in what I do want to talk about. So let's stand, please, if you would. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Remember, verse number 1 here gives us the name of this book. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto the servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight as we are ready to begin the book of Revelation. Lord, we just pray that you would open up our eyes to the true revelation of Jesus Christ. May we see him in ways that we've never seen him before. And Lord, uh, help us to understand better what your word reveals in this great book that the Apostle John penned. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I do want to mention verse number 3 before we actually get into the message tonight because here we find the value and the reason for studying this book. There is a promise attached to this. I don't know of any other book of the Bible where you start out in the very first chapter that it tells you there is going to be a blessing that comes with studying this particular book. But that's exactly what the book of Revelation says. You're going to receive a blessing from this. Now... I know that, that I said a moment ago that some people are just simply bored when you tell them that you're going to preach from the book of Revelation. But I know that many of you here tonight, you're not bored by it because you haven't actually gone through a complete study of it. You've heard little snippets of Revelation. You've uh, read some passages that were confusing to you. And really, that's kind of what prompts the questions that we have in the Sunday morning forum class. Now we have an opportunity to study this book. But tonight's the preliminary message for the preliminary message. And we're going to consider this evening the subject, the bookends of the Bible. This evening what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first book of the Bible and contrast it with the last book of the Bible. Now it's very fitting that God should begin the Bible with such an important book. I said it's foundational. There are things that you need to know in that. And as the Bible goes through, it builds and builds and builds upon the very things, principles that begin in the book of Genesis. But then you come down to the end of the Bible, and the Bible is capped off by this amazing revelation of Jesus Christ. There are 66 books in the canon of Scripture, and on one end we have the book of Genesis, and on the other end is the book of Revelation. Now, Genesis is the book of beginnings, so that makes Revelation what? The book of what? You're dead wrong. I knew you were going to say that. It's not the end. Revelation is actually a new beginning. Because what we have in Revelation is not the end. Because if you're a child of God, you are going to live forever, and it's never going to end. It goes on and on and on and on. And so that's what makes Revelation and makes the Bible really different from any other book that you read. When you pick up a novel at the very last page, usually it's going to say, the end. Or if you, you know, a little bit fancier, it might say, fini, which means the end. But the Bible doesn't say that. 
There is no ending to what we read here. We're going to live forever. So we're going to compare, or better I should say contrast, the bookends of the Bible. What do we find in Genesis, and what do we find in Revelation? Well, number one, we find the old creation versus the new creation. Every student of the Bible, I think, knows the first words of the Bible. Can you quote those with me? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis begins with creation of the material universe. I'm calling it here the old creation. But really, when God created the world, it wasn't old at all. In fact, it was very new. Some people believe that what God did was he took what was already here, that was already in chaos, and for millions and millions of years, that the universe was kind of hanging around here, and then God started to put all things in order, and then he made the creation. And so they actually believe that not only is the creation old, but God made it out of very old materials. In the 19th century, there was a man by the name of Thomas Chalmers who proposed that between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis 1, verse 2, was this huge gap. There were millions of years that were placed in there, perhaps even billions of years. And so that when God created the earth, all that he did was to bring all of these things from chaos, and then he started the world. In order to keep up with evolutionary science, which is really a misnomer because science means knowledge, and there is no knowledge in evolutionary science, but in order to try to keep up with that, they proposed this huge time period in between those two verses, and there's the place that you can stick the dinosaurs, and you can stick all the eons of time that ostensibly would be required for evolution, and there you find uh, the time periods that you need to put together the geological arrangement of this earth. Now, perhaps that wouldn't have become so widespread if it weren't for another man by the name of C.I. Schofield. And C.I. Schofield put out a study Bible in which he put in this theory, the uh, the gap theory is what we call it, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Many of you probably use a Schofield study Bible. I would not stake my life on the Schofield study Bible. I have Schofield study Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm using one right now. And I use it because I like the chapter divisions, I like the print and so forth, I like those kinds of things. But I'm not going to stake my theological foundations on the, on the Schofield Study Bible. Now, unfortunately, there were many uh, fundamentalists who, who liked Chalmers and liked Schofield, and they picked up this theory, this gap theory, and began to teach it. I'm not talking, of course, about fundamentalists like you and I know, because most of the ones we know absolutely do not believe in the gap theory. But there were many fundamental colleges that picked this up and they popularized it. And so it's been taught in fundamentalist schools for many years. But I personally, and I, believe the, I really believe this, I believe that the world was created in six literal days. The earth was created in six literal days. From start to finish, it's only six days. And God made this world out of absolutely nothing. He called it into existence. He made everything in six literal 24-hour days. And just as the Bible says, on the seventh day, God rested. Now, he didn't rest because he was tired. That's not what it means. God rested. That means he stopped creating. All of creation was finished. I believe that it's essential for us to take the Genesis account of creation, believe it in its natural reading, that that's the way that God created the heavens and the earth. And I promise you, if you can accept that fact, if you can believe the book of Genesis and the actual creation of the world exactly as God put it here, you will have no trouble believing anything else that's in the Bible. 
And so when we come to difficult passages in the book of Revelation, and there are things there that seem to be just absolutely incredible, things beyond your belief, beyond your wildest imagination, you can believe them without trying to explain it away. Because you have this sure foundation underneath of you that you accept that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God and we're to read it naturally and read it just like it says. So a God who can create everything can do anything that he wants to do. And so the things that happen in Revelation can certainly take place. So that's the old creation. That's the creation that's old now because it's thousands of years old. But the Bible also records a new creation. We have the other end of the Bible. That's the book end of the Bible, Revelation on the other end, that records the creation of a new world. Now, the Bible promises that there's going to be a new creation that's going to come. And in the the book of Revelation, it calls that the new heaven and the new earth. In Revelation 21, verse number 1, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Nobody knows exactly what the new heaven and, or how the new heaven and the earth come about. John doesn't give any explanation of that. Does he mean that there's going to be a brand new creation? Does he mean that uh, the heavens and earth, that w- as we know them now, they're going to be completely gone? Or does he mean that everything's just going to be renovated? Does he mean there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, in the sense that God is going to renovate everything? In Second Peter, we're told there that uh, the earth is going to be destroyed by fire. It says it will melt under intense heat. What well, does that mean, that, that Peter's saying that everything is going to be burned up, or does it mean that the earth is going to be purged? Well, I have an opinion about that, which we'll get at a later time, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen there, and neither does anybody else for absolute sure, because the Bible simply doesn't tell us all that. So what's this new heaven and new earth going to be like? I don't know exactly what it's all about, but I do know this. It's not going to be like the old earth. Everything that's in the earth right now that defiles, everything that's destructive, that's all going to be done away with. It'll be gone. And this new earth that we're going to live on or that can be inhabited will be a perfect world that's perfectly suited for the people of God. But that's not all. It's not just the new earth that's created. The Bible says there's also going to be a new heaven. And again, we don't know exactly what John is referring to when he says that. He may be talking about the stellar heavens. He may be saying that as you look at a telescope out there and you see all the stars and you see the galaxies and and all those things that are out there, that maybe all that's going to be redone. The Bible doesn't exactly say what that's going to be. Maybe he's talking about the new Jerusalem. And the book of Revelation talks about that. And the New Jerusalem is specifically a place that's prepared for the bride of Christ. So whichever it is, Revelation records that there's going to be a new creation. And it far surpasses anything that we read in Genesis. I don't know about you folks, but I am awestruck by what God has already made. Not just what he's going to create out there somewhere. Not just what's beyond that we can see with a telescope. I am awestruck with what God has done with this world. When you think about the Grand Canyon and, and uh, Yosemite and, and, uh, and the glaciers there, the depths of the oceans, when you think about birds and animals, and when you think about man himself, it is absolutely amazing what God has done. And yet I also believe that the Bible teaches that God is going to do something even more spectacular. And that's when he creates the new heavens and the new earth. 
Now, a second thing that we have, a contrast between the bookends, is the curse imposed versus the curse lifted. Genesis records for us just the wonderful creation of God. But something happened right after creation, and that was when God created man, man disobeyed God, and man fell from his holy, innocent state. Adam sinned, and because of that sin, God imposed a curse on the world. He put a curse on man, on beast, on the fields. I happen to believe myself that the entire universe is cursed because of the fall. We're not going to read the verses right now, but sometime later you can go into Genesis chapter 3 and you can read different things there about the curse. There's a curse that's put on Satan, the one who's the deceiver himself. There's a curse that's put on Eve, the one who was deceived first. There was a curse put on the ground. Uh, The Bible says that thorns and thistles would grow up because of this curse. There's a curse that's placed upon man. Man has to labor by the sweat of his brow to make ends meet. All that is a part of the curse. Nothing in the entire universe, as I said a moment ago, in my opinion, is untouched by that curse. The curse followed man all throughout the history of the Old Testament until you come down to the end of the Old Testament and the very last word that you read in the Old Testament is, guess what? The last word is curse. Look it up. And The last word of the Old Testament is curse. Always throughout the Old Testament, people were afflicted by that. Throughout the history of Israel, they're always dealing with the curse. Romans, when we come to that, Paul writes Romans. And he says there that the whole creation travails in pain together until now, waiting for the lifting of that curse. Every one of us that's sitting in this church building tonight, even though that we are believers in Jesus Christ, we trust him for our salvation, yet we are still living under that curse. What will happen to us? The Bible teaches, and we all know it to be true, that if Jesus tarries his coming, every single person in this room is going to die. You're either going to meet death because of old age, or you're going to meet an untimely death because of accident or something else, but you are going to die. And that is an effect of the curse. We can't escape it. But all that changes when we come to the book of Revelation. The ancient old curse that's been placed on the world will be lifted. Adam, who is cast out of that perfect environment and told to leave paradise in the book of Genesis, in the book of Revelation, it says that paradise will be restored. God's people will live in a restored paradise. Revelation 22, verse 3 begins simply this way, this way, and there shall be no more curse. The curse lifted changes everything. The curse lifted means that man comes back face to face with God once again. No, it's so sad in many different ways that that Adam sinned and Adam fell and the whole human race fell. It's sad because the Bible says that before that, Adam walked with God. It says in the cool of the day that Adam and God had fellowship with one another. But then Adam sinned. And so there was a curse placed upon him. So we don't have that kind of fellowship any longer. Fellowship between God and man is broken. And so we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So we can't walk with God, because there's not one of us in this building tonight that in our flesh is pleasing to God. We can't walk with him. But the revelation of Jesus Christ changes the enmity between God and man. Jesus came into the world to lift the curse. He came to restore man to the innocence that we find in the Garden of Eden. So the new heavens and the new earth, 
There's no gonna, not going to be any sin there any longer. There won't be, will be no sin there. There's no more curse in that place. So what do we find then? We find glorified men walking with Almighty God once again. So the revelation is in the back of the book. And I'm so glad that God put it in the back of the book so we can read it there, we can have hope, and there's no wonder that we can believe in Jesus Christ because he has come to lift this curse. And no wonder the prophecies, the prophecies of this book are blessed. The third thing that we find is a contrast between Genesis and Revelation is a tree prohibited versus a tree permitted. There's another contrast that we find here. The curse is still what we're dealing with, and everything that I'm talking about here is relative to that five-letter word, C-U-R-S-E. In the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that there was a tree of life. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, it says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden, Adam could eat of that. Any time that Adam wanted to, he could eat of that tree. God invited him to come to the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, it tells us there that that tree enabled Adam to live forever. But when Adam sinned, God took away that privilege. God said, you can't eat of the tree of life any longer. And so what God did, he put a cherub there to guard the way into Eden. That means that he put an angel there. There was an angel with flaming swords that kept Adam from going back into that garden and eating of the tree of life and there living forever. Now, do you know that was actually an act of mercy? It was merciful for God not to allow Adam to eat of that tree because had Adam continued to eat of the tree of life, he would have lived forever in a sinful body. He would have lived forever under this curse and all the effects that the curse brought. I've seen some people, and I know that you have too, they get old, they get sick, and uh, things, just, um, things are just bad for them. And, and you heard even Christians say this, I, I just wish the Lord would take me home. I know you've heard people say that before. God knew that that would happen. And had he allowed people back in to eat of the tree of life, man would have lived forever, but perpetually living under that curse. So God banned the tree. He said, you can't eat of this tree any longer. But we have the book of Revelation. We have the bookend on the other side that says that we can eat of this tree of life again. The prohibition against eating of the tree is lifted. So God invites us to come and eat of this tree of life once again. Listen to what it says in in three places in Revelation. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In Revelation 22, verse 2, In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 14 of that same chapter, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to eat to right to eat the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So here's the change that we see. In Genesis, man is prohibited from eating of that tree. But when we come to the new Jerusalem, when we come into the new heavens, then God says we can come and we can eat of that tree again. We have a right to it. And the reason we have a right is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
If you are a believer in him, he has transferred his righteousness to you. There's no sin there when you get to heaven. And so you are invited to eat of that tree once again. I have a right to eat of the tree. In America, we're always talking about rights. We talk about the Bill of Rights and we have people say, I will go to my death defending the Bill of Rights. And well, we should. We have rights that we ought to defend. But the right that I'm most concerned about is not the rights that we have in the Bill of Rights. The right that I'm concerned about is the right to eat of this tree of life. And I promise you this, the God of the greatest government in the world, the highest government of all the ages, has guaranteed that right and it's never going to be taken away from you. We'll be able to eat of the tree of life. Now somebody, though, wanted to take that right away from us. He wants to take away our rights But I want you to listen to another contrast that we have in the bookends. This is number four, Satan's arrival versus Satan's removal. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan arrived. Everything was going fine. Everything was going very well, running very smoothly, until this old fellow named Lucifer showed up. There's a lot of speculation about how long that Satan was around before he arrived. We really don't know that. In fact, there's a lot of speculation about how much time that Adam and Eve spent in the the Garden of Eden before they actually fell. There's some people who think, well, it was years that they lived there and then Satan came. Others say, well, no, it was only months or maybe a few weeks, maybe even as low as just a few days or even a few hours that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody else knows I do know this, that Adam had to have some time in the garden because he had to come to know God. He had to commune with him. He had to know what God was like. He had to have these different things that God told him about creation and about all the different things that he would do. Then also in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse number 8, it tells us that God planted a garden in Eden. I don't know if God planted that garden fully grown or if he planted it so it had to grow up. But I know that God planted a garden. I do know this, though, that however long that it took, Satan showed up. He was a fallen angel. We find that out in the book of Job, also in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Isaiah. He was a fallen angel. And we know that by the time that he showed up, his his fall had already occurred. His fall because of pride had already happened. And Satan had already honed his skills of deception. Because when he showed up, it was like in a flash, he had Eve eating out of his hand and also eating out of the wrong tree. And then Eve went and convinced her husband to take of the tree also. And from there, everything went downhill. From that time, Satan has been the arch enemy of man. He appears to us to be a friend. But Satan is a destroyer. Destruction is always in his wake. Wherever he walks, calamity follows. And so he's become our enemy. Anything that happens that's bad to you, Satan has his fingerprints all over it. Satan was the one who introduced sin into this universe. And he's been here throughout human history, folks. And he will continue to be here until something happens. Something is going to happen. And that's the revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one with all authority, will finally come and he will crush the serpent's head. Now, interestingly, Satan's removal was predicted upon his arrival. Satan had just arrived and God said he'll just be leaving. 
And this is in Genesis 3:15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, talking to Satan, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is Jesus. And so here in Genesis 3:15, we find a prediction of the virgin birth. And the Bible tells us that this one who was born of a virgin, there is a prophecy right here that says that he will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. You see, Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes, after so many millennia, after millennia of Satan doing his thing and having his will and his way in the world, Jesus is going to come and he's going to grab hold of the old dragon by the tail and he's going to sling him right into the fires of or an everlasting lake of fire. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now let's go to number five. Another contrast that we have between Genesis and Revelation is the beginning of sorrow versus the end of sorrow. Now again, of course, we're talking about things that are related to this curse. That curse changed everything. Everything that was good for Adam has a counterpart in the curse that's bad for Adam. You ever wondered, for instance, what childbirth would have been like before the fall? Would there have been any pain that's associated with childbirth? Some people say, well, if there hadn't been a fall, there wouldn't be any children. I haven't actually read anywhere in the Bible where it says that children were a part of the curse. Some of your kids, I'm convinced that they probably were, but uh, the Bible really doesn't tell us that children were a part of the curse. So what would childbirth have been like without a curse? Well, I don't think you'd have to go to the hospital because there wouldn't be any hospitals. There's no sickness, so why would you have hospitals? So probably, before the curse, I'm sure of this, that there could be no pain associated with childbirth if children were, could have been born before the fall of man. I did hear something that was interesting the other day. Um, my son-in-law in Kentucky told me about a preacher who was convinced that there was sorrow and pain before the curse. And uh, we read about this in Genesis 3.16. It says, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So this man's argument was, if God multiplied sorrow, there must have been some sorrow there to multiply. And so his reasoning was, if you multiply something by zero, you end up with zero. Theological understanding is the same way. If you have none, don't ask God to multiply it, because you still end up with zero. Now let me show you, though, the error of this. If sorrow is not a part of the curse, and if that's not part of man's corruption, then when the new heaven and the new earth come and we are returned to an uncursed, pre-fallen state, then we would also be returned to pain and sorrow. But the other book in the Bible says differently. In the book of Revelation, it says, in Revelation 21, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So if there could have been childbirth before the fall, there wasn't any pain or sorrow attached to it. And when we get to heaven... When Christ is fully revealed and we come into that full revelation, all pain, all sorrow, all tears are going to be gone. 
Number six on our list of contrast is death demanded versus death defeated. Genesis is a book of beginnings, and there are a lot of things that could start, got started in Genesis. We have the universe, we have life, we have man, we have marriage and evil. There's language, government, culture, nations, religion. All of that got started in the book of Genesis. But there's one thing that we surely wish had not got start, gotten started, and that was death. Death comes in the book of Genesis. And death is the most feared enemy that every one of us faces. God gave a prohibition for Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, if you do, the outcome will be death. Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. And so the prohibition of eating of that tree demanded the punishment of death. Well, we know what happened. Adam ate of it. And so in the book of Romans we read, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There's a very important principle that you need to learn about these particular scriptures and about the Bible in general. The Bible presents Adam as the federal head of the human race. God tried the entire human race in Adam. The federal head means that he is our representative. And so when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden and death passed to Adam, all of his progeny will have that same death passed to him. And we know that that's true. God did not have to put every one of us in the Garden of Eden to see what we would do under similar circumstances. God already has all that information. He knew what we would do, and so he tried the whole human race in Adam. So Adam's sinful nature, and it's important that you understand, not his sin, because we're not responsible for the sin that Adam committed, but his sinful nature is passed on, or what the Bible uses terminology like this, it's imputed to all of us. So Adam's obligation to punishment, the punishment of death, passed upon all people. But we have the revelation. We have the other bookend, and there we find Jesus Christ revealed. One of the most powerful statements that we read in Revelation is in chapter 1, where it says in verses 5 and 6, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a powerful statement there. He washed us from our sins. And when we were washed from our sins, our obligation to the punishment of death was washed away with that. Death is used in the Bible 372 times. There is only one instance in all of the Bible where there is not something macabre attached to the word death. And that's in Revelation 21 verse 4. And there shall be no more death. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Well, we could look at a lot of different comparison and contrast between uh, Genesis and Revelation. But I'm going to give you just one more. That's all I have time for. This is number 7. And one of the things we're going to learn when we get a little bit further here is that number seven is a number of completion in the Bible. And the book of Revelation uses the number seven often. So with number seven, my sermon will be complete. So that was kind of a prophetic thing in there. So number seven, Adam's wife versus the second Adam's wife. Genesis tells us where women came from. They didn't come from Venus. 
They're not Romulans either. And if you don't understand that, ask Captain Kirk about that. The first woman was also the first wife. In fact, she was created for that purpose. I think God took the woman out of the man so that man would very clearly understand that his wife is the closest human being to him. Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What do we know about Adam? Well, we know this. Adam was created a perfect man, but then he fell. We also know this. Adam, or rather Eve, was created a perfect woman, and she also fell. It's interesting information, but the peculiar thing about all of that is that Adam and Eve fell while they were living in a perfect environment. You know, there's some people today who say, well, if we could just change the environment, if we can change things and have a utopia, uh, let's do away with all poverty, do our best to, to work that out, get rid of all these things, and people will no longer be sinners, everybody will be happy, and everything will work out fine in the end. Adam couldn't do it, and Adam was a perfect man in a perfect environment. Well, thank the Lord for this. We not only have Adam, but we have the second Adam. And that's what the scriptures call Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 47, it says, the first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And so in Romans, Paul says, for if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now, one man's offense, that's Adam's offense. The righteousness of one, that's Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So the second man came from heaven... That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and he did not fail. He lived an absolutely perfect life and he fulfilled what the first Adam could not do. Adam is a perfect man created in a perfect environment and he fell. Jesus is the perfect man come from heaven who lived in an imperfect environment and he did not fall. And so he did what Adam could not do. The first Adam was given a wife named Eve. And the second Adam also has a wife. He has a bride, and he calls her his church. In Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 1 through 3, we find the church is mentioned 18 times. After chapter 3, the church is not mentioned at all. And the reason that it's not mentioned is because Jesus has called that bride to come home. And what he's done, he's prepared a very special place for her to live. The bride is at home. Now, Revelation 21, verse 9 says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. There you see all those sevens there. And he talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And so the church, this is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. She is a bride that is adorned for her husband. And Christ has prepared a special place for her to live. And that's the new Jerusalem. And so what this second man from above does, the second man, Jesus Christ, he takes his church, he takes the bride, and he carries her over the threshold into her new home. And we're going to live forever in the new Jerusalem. So that is a perfect place created for a perfect wife who's married to a perfect husband. Now the difference here then 
is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The difference is the book of Genesis versus the book of Revelation. One book in versus the other book in. And what we have is a revelation that is a new beginning. So I would say to all of you that are members of Berean Baptist Church, this is not the end. This life is not the end. This is just the beginning for us. We're going to live forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word tonight and to look at your holy word from end to end, from cover to cover. And here we see, Lord, that everything that happened bad in the very beginning with the fall of man is undone by the Lord Jesus Christ for everyone who trusts him as Savior. Lord, help us to know him better. Present him to us as we study the book of Revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.